so we're in Second Peter, and last week I left with a question. Most of this chapter is parallel to Jude. The things that are going on in both are the same. The fact that you've got people coming into the congregation that are leading people astray, and we'll get to a lack of respect toward authority. We'll do that tonight. One of the things that we left with, that we're talking about judgment, and I'll read it to you starting in verse 4. So I'm in 2 Peter 2 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul, over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So that's the last thing we read. And the observation that I made as I was looking at the list of groups that were sanded off by God, I noticed that Israel was not among them. For example, by the time of Peter, Israel has been in exile for 700 years, and then Judah went to Babylon and returned during that period. So God has dealt with Israel in a rather severe manner at least twice before Peter. This is obviously before the destruction in 70 AD, but from Peter's perspective, he's dealt with Israel in much the same way twice. So the question I had is, huh, none of these include dealing with Israel. You have the angels that got thrown in gloomy darkness and hell and are kept for judgment. And then you've got the world that was destroyed in the flood. And then you've got Sodom and Gomorrah. So none of these is Israel. So there's two possible things going on here. There may be three or four, but I found two. Thing one is none of the poster children for destruction here is under covenant. Now you may say the Noahide covenant would have covered Sodom and Gomorrah, but I'm suggesting to you that that's a general humanity covenant. It's not specific to anybody. So thing one is nobody here is really under covenant, as is Israel. So dealing with Israel and Judah would have been in accordance with the covenant. So everything that happens to Israel and Judah, you know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and so forth, that's all in accordance with the covenant. So their behavior in violating the covenant brought recompense upon them and they got no complaint because they didn't keep up their side of the covenant, and so the penalties of the covenant kicked in. So they're not the ones that are being talked about here. What we're talking about are the ungodly. 
And you could certainly argue that lots of Israel had become ungodly, which is why they got kicked out of the land. But the fact remains that they are still under covenant. And we see from all the prophets, prophets that wrote centuries after the destruction of Israel, still talk about the return of the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. So it's very clear that they are under a covenant with God, they remain under a covenant with God, and right now they're in a cosmic timeout until God gets around to bringing them back. But they're not these people in the three examples, which are angels, the pre-flood world, and the pagans in Sodom and Gomorrah, which God dealt with. So that's sort of thing one. I can see why Israel is not included in this list because of the existence of their covenant. The comment was that the other part of that is that Israel, although it was sanded off and thrown out of the land, has never disappeared. Here, what you have is total destruction, or in the case of the angels, imprisonment until time of judgment. So that's sort of thing one. Thing two is, I was reading Romans 2 last night, coincidentally. You know, coincidence is not a kosher word, right? And I came across this. So I'm Romans 2.12. For those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Notice the difference there. Those who have sinned without the law will perish. Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. And those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. It doesn't say necessarily that they will perish. When you have a judgment, certainly a death penalty is a possible sentence. But it's not automatic as seems to be the case of those who sin without the law. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Yeshua Messiah. So Gentiles who don't have the law, who are well behaved, will be judged by Yeshua. So those who have sinned without the law perish. Those who sin with the law are judged. And then Gentiles who walk according to Torah just because they're well-behaved people will show that they have the law written on their hearts. In other words, what you can infer is that Lot was well-behaved according to the law, as some Gentiles are well-behaved according to Romans. But those who are depraved will be destroyed. Romans says it, and Second Peter says it through his examples. Noah had good behavior in a bad environment, as did Lot. And so the point of the exercise here is he says that 
the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So God is able to separate the godly from the ungodly and deal with the ungodly. And the poster event for that, of course, is the Exodus, where God moved Israel out of the way, up to Goshen, while they dealt with Egypt. He didn't take them into the sky. He moved them out of the way, and they were still in Egypt, and God dealt with Egypt, which, by the way, is why I am not a rapture maven because I don't see any historical precedent for it in scripture. What I see is Noah, what I see is Lot, what I see is Israel in the case of Egypt. All of those people stayed on earth. They didn't get sucked up into the heavens. They didn't join anybody in the sky or anything like that. They just got moved out of the way while God dealt with the world. So we are still paralleling Jude. So now I'm at verse 9. If then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So the ones who are being kept for the day of judgment are those who engage in the lust of defiling passion and those who despise authority, two different things. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So what in heaven's name is that all about? The question is, angels though greater in might, do not pronounce blasphemous judgment against them, and them is the glorious ones. And what I don't know is whether the glorious ones are also angels. It's, it's intensification. Angels who are mightier than you are don't dare blaspheme the glorious ones. Therefore, how dare you, a mere man, blaspheme the glorious ones? I mean, that's the argument that's being made. And what I don't know is whether the glorious ones are also angels. Just don't know the answer to that. However, we do have a clue in Jude. And I'm in Jude, verse 8. We just finished up with Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels and all that kind of stuff. So now in verse 8. Yet, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So there's our glorious ones again. And when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So what we have here is Michael is an archangel. Satan apparently is one of the glorious ones. So Satan is one of the glorious ones. Michael is an archangel. And when Michael and Satan were wrestling over the body of Moses, and I have no idea what that was all about. It's just sort of plopped in here. 
No idea why they were wrestling over the body of Moses, but they were. But the point is, Michael, who's an archangel, is wrestling with the devil. I am assuming then the devil here is a glorious one. And I am further assuming that Michael is also a glorious one. Now, why do I say that? Michael seems to be equivalent in power to Satan. Remember in the book of Daniel, where Gabriel is coming to announce the answer to Daniel's prayer, and he gets hung up for 21 days, and it's only when Michael shows up and gives him a hand that he's able to burn through the interference that the Prince of Persia is exerting on him, that he's able to, so Michael is a big deal, and Jude calls him an archangel. So I'm assuming that Michael and Satan are fairly well equivalent in the hierarchy, although all I have going for me here is Greek logic, which means I can be really wrong. The point is both Peter and Jude are talking about people who come into the congregation and are leading people astray by false teaching and by invitations to sensuality. So what they're trying to do is sow within the body this idea that unauthorized use of the reproductive organs is somehow okay. So that's one of the main hooks in all this. Peter says that they do it out of greed, and it could be greed for money, but it could also be greed for power and influence. If you can get a cult following, you will have power and influence. But both Peter and Jude are talking about the same phenomenon where you have people that come in to the church, synagogue, whichever, and pose as fellow believers, but what they're really trying to do is sow dissension. Off the subject, but on the subject. One of the blogs I read, Blog and May Blog, I've talked about him before. He's a Presbyterian up in Moscow, Idaho. And somebody was writing nasty things about him. And he was reading the nasty things that were written about him. He says, this is really good. And what the guy said is that the congregation up there in Idaho is rough-hewn, tight-knit, and impenetrable. And he says that is really good because what happens when somebody gets successful in Christianity is immediately they start attracting hangers-on that say, oh, well, we need to cut your hair a little bit different this way, and we need to set up the stage a little different this way, and we need to get this set up this way, and all that stuff. In other words, you get these hangers-on that come in to try and increase your market share, and oh, by the way, become employed in that process. And what they wind up doing is they wind up blow-drying you and packaging you to Christianity light. And so what Doug Wilson was saying was, 
what a great compliment this guy's just given us is we haven't been penetrated by that group. The whole piece that he was quoting from was sort of really critical of him, but he says, that's gold. Because what that says is we are not being corrupted by these people who come in a la the ones that Jude and Peter are talking about. So taking off of Wilson, one of the things that happens when you gather a crowd is crowds of people represent power. They represent money, wealth, power, whatever. Remember when Abraham went after the kings of the east and captured them and came back? Remember the king of Sodom, I think, said, all right, you guys can keep all of the spoil, just give me the people. Because the people are the source of wealth. The people are the source of power. So when a church gathers a bunch of people and it starts growing, it naturally attracts people who come in simply because there is power there and influence there to be gained. And so that's one of the motivations, I believe, of these false teachers that have come in in both Jude's case and Peter's case. And they may be writing to the same audience for all I know. But anyway, one of the hooks that they use, obviously, in both Jude and Peter, is sensuality. But another hook that they use is power, fame. You know, our guys that say, all right, now we're going to have to blow dry your hair, and we're going to have to set up the stage this way, and we're going to have to get this kind of a band, and, you know, oh, you can't say quite it that way. You've got to tone that down a little bit. Handlers, if you will. I don't know whether you're paying attention, but Jerry Falwell has just bit the dust. And that is one of the things that happens when a ministry gets very successful. You start attracting people, and not all of the people that you attract are beneficial to you. Now, you've got to have them all come in because your mission is to spread the gospel. And until they actually misbehave, they're welcome in the church because we're all sinners, right? But what winds up happening is, as I say, they exert influence and start shaping and flaking the thing. After a while, you're chasing donations, you're chasing TV ratings, you're chasing power, influence, whatever, and you cease to be preaching the gospel. So I will suggest that all of that is going on with Peter and Jude. All right, so let's see if we can get into this paragraph. So I am at uh, verse 10 and a half, 2 Peter 2, 10 and a half. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the rage of their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So notice these are people who have come into the church or the synagogue. I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. 
but periodically we have had people wander through this congregation. And we've asked a few of them to leave because they come in talking about angels in a non-biblical way. They talk about angels as they would talk about spirits in Boulder, any of those kinds of things. So they are sort of Christians, but they aren't really. They're worshipers of angels, for lack of something better. And what they try and do always is they can't keep their mouth shut. We had one here for a while, and I said, all right, you can stay here, but you can't talk about that. She couldn't do it. So we finally asked her to leave. People are creatures of belief. All of us are. And if you believe in the right thing, it will come out of you. If you believe in the wrong thing, it will come out of you. But you can't hide what you actually believe for very long. And I don't know what these folks, what their problem is, that they're blaspheming the glorious I, I just don't know. I mean, just don't know the answer to that. Down to verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Pause there for a minute. Balaam, we all know the story. Balaam is a prophet. And in fact, the rabbis say that Balaam was a prophet of equivalent access to Moses. This is rabbinic, not scripture. So if you don't like it, just ignore it. But their comment was, the Gentiles will say, if we had had Moses, we would be righteous too. And so the rabbis say, well, you did. You had Balaam, and he was equivalent, and it didn't do you any good. That's the rabbinic take on this. But the fact of the matter is, Balaam is a genuine, 100% solid platinum prophet. He talks to God by the right name, Jehovah. He receives visions from Jehovah. He receives oracles from Jehovah. In other words, he has legitimate access to Jehovah. He is not a faker. He is not somebody that is wandering around with a hair shirt saying, the end is near. Put some money in my cup. So he's got real access, but he used it for personal gain and was persuaded to try and change his prophecy for gain. So you remember in the story that when the Moabites sent people to him and he says, ah, can't do it, God says no. So they try again and he goes up and says, well, let me see if I can get a better deal here. And God says, go ahead, but only say what I'm gonna say. And the whole point is he wants the money because God said the first time he asked the question is no. It wasn't maybe, it wasn't not now, it wasn't maybe in a little while, it was no. But he didn't accept that answer. He assumes God's going to change his mind. So these folks, with their rotten souls, 
They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So the point is, these people are professing believers. They may even have some of the spiritual gifts but they are using them for their own gain. One of the things about the spiritual gifts, sort of all over the place tonight, sorry about that, is spiritual gifts are given to you for the benefit of the body. They're not given to you for your benefit. So the fact that these folks may have various spiritual gifts, they are using them to their own benefit and they are not using them to the benefit of the body. And notice they are enticing unsteady souls, which is to say you have people that have just come into the body who are not very strong, who are not very wise, are not very learned. And again, the poster children for that are the ones who came to the Galatians, remember? Paul and Galatians, where Paul went through and told them the gospel, and then a bunch of Jews of the circumcision party came through after Paul, and they were trying to convince them that, oh, no, 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 you got to get circumcised. And Paul says the same thing about them. What they want is power and influence over you. They don't care about your circumcision. Same thing. These are believing messianic Jews who are trying to entice unsteady souls away from the gospel and into something else. That's the whole point of the letter to the Galatians. Peter is saying the same thing about whoever these people are who have come in to the synagogue. And remember, keep this tucked in the back of your mind. These are not Gentiles he's writing to. He's writing to Hebrews. So these are people who know the scripture. So I'm not entirely sure what specifically they're enticing people to but you see the same thing happening in Galatians. The comment was, maybe these people are Sunday Christians. No, the comment is good though, that he's writing to Hebrews, and he's writing to Hebrews who are believers in the Messiah. And I don't know at what point the church stopped being Jewish and developed bacon breath. Because the early church, they were believers in Messiah, that was straight, but they also understood that Moses was how you behaved. I don't know that the abrogation of the law as the misreading of Paul by much of Christianity would lead you to was abroad then. Just don't know the answer to that. So they're a coherent enough group that you can address a letter to them and the letter gets preserved and the letter gets handed down to us. So they are at least that cohesive a group. I don't know whether they have a synagogue or what. The specifics of the problem are not so important as it's a problem that happens in every church throughout history. As soon as it gets successful, you get people who come in claiming to be one of you who will then lead you astray. One of the things that happens in certainly the Messianic movement, and Ray and I, when we set the thing up, were very aware of this, is Messianics love learning something new. 
and the world is littered with people with a three-day pass and a briefcase who will come through your synagogue and will teach you about this new thing that they've discovered. And we decided we were not going to be a stop on the lecture circuit. We made that decision consciously. We're very, very careful about who we allow to come and speak. And you'll notice one of the things about us is we don't have very many outside speakers. That's by design. Because, again, there is a thriving messianic lecture circuit that you can get in and you can have different people come and talk to you about their book or their new discovery or their prophetic vision or whatever it is. And we decided we didn't want to do that for that very reason. So, all the way down to 2 Peter 2.17. These are waterless springs, mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Remember, one of the things we had up at the beginning here is that your pagan friends or your Hebrew friends are looking at you really strange because you don't do the stuff you used to do anymore. That's one of the things. You sort of become isolated from the culture that you are in because you don't do stuff that you used to do. So the idea is you have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Yeshua Messiah, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So what is obviously going on here is these are people who have been saved in the Baptist sense, which is to say they've said the sinner's prayer and been baptized, but they still feel a strong pull from the world. And one of the things about sin is sin recruits. Nobody ever is happy sinning all by himself. You feel much better if you have a crowd around you. So if these people have gone back to the ways that they had left, what they want to do is bring other folks with them. And oh, we'll still go to church every Saturday and all that kind of stuff, but we're doing other stuff that we shouldn't be doing during the week. The other thing that is interesting is verse 19. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. That is what's going on with our country right now. Because what's happened is, and I will use women as the example because they're sort of right out there, women have been told that they can be free and can behave like men. And biology is against them. And they rail against biology. When I was in the Army, I had a, there was a female officer in the same BOQ that I was in. I didn't work with her. She's just a friend. And she used to just get 
righteously indignant about her monthly cycle. She says, ah, I screwed up and didn't get pregnant again. I mean, it was just, she was not married. That kind of a nice lady, I liked her, but she did have this problem. She was not marriage material. But the point is, they have been taught that they can behave biologically like men do, and they can't. Because what happens is they waste their reproductive years fooling around, and when they finally decide to settle down, nobody's interested in them anymore because they're past their prime, and so they wind up living alone with box wine and cats and being angry and bitter. But they were promised freedom. The lure of this is freedom. You get to do whatever you want. You're free. There's no restraints on you. You can do anything. That's the lure. And it's a lie. Men can't even behave like men, much less women. But the point I'm making is that sin always sells itself as freedom. Take this drug. It will expand your mind. It will sharpen your perspectives. It will make you see things you've never seen before. You will have focus like you've never had. All of these are promises. The lure here is freedom. And what God tells us in the Torah is this is the way to behave to avoid going back into slavery. So if you have been sold a false route to freedom, what it is is a route to slavery to something. Slavery to drugs. Slavery to a house full of cats and box wine. Slavery to whatever. But it's always sold as freedom. The comment was it's really rebellion. Of course it is. It's rebellion against rules that you don't like. But the sale here is not that the law, Torah, reflects your personal human nature and operating in accordance with Torah will make you be as good a human as you can be. That's not how they see Torah. How they see Torah is this angry, vindictive God who is a killjoy who won't let me have any fun. And so what sin promises is you get to go have fun. You get to do anything you want. You're going to be free. And what that does is it's a path back into slavery. Not necessarily slavery to the human master, but slavery to something. And I just used feminism. I could have used half a dozen things. But feminism is obvious right now because that's the bill of goods women have been sold in this culture. That you get to do anything. You disregard the way God made you. You get to do whatever. You, in fact, you don't like it. You can have your sex changed. <laughs> 